This morning we continue in the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's a Bible in the pew there in front of you. You might want to follow along on this very somewhat complicated section of the book of John. Uh, It's sort of straightforward in some ways, but there is some uh, times it gets... uh, uh, a little repetitious in some of the things that are being said because he's emphasizing a very, very important topic to us. Um, it's an appropriate chapter, chapter 6, because it's called the bread chapter, as I told you last week. Uh, it talks about Jesus being the bread that came down from heaven. Uh, You may make Christmas bread this time of year. You may enjoy Christmas bread as a gift given to you this time of year. But the true Christmas bread is talked about in John chapter 6. This is the bread that did not come from your kitchen. This is the bread that came from heaven. This is what Christmas is all about. This is the incarnation. This is one who descended from heaven and came into the world on a rescue mission, came into the world with a message for all humanity to save and redeem all humanity. This is the true Christmas bread. And what's interesting, he comes to Bethlehem to be born, which is the city or house of bread. So the bread came to the city of bread to be the bread of life. For all humanity. John chapter 6 is so important in communicating this message to us in the face of people who were uh, only following him for superficial reasons. He lays out the importance of who he is and why he came. Well, that's the New Testament chapter on bread. That's the bread chapter in the New Testament. Let me take you to Exodus 16 for a moment. Let me show you the bread chapter in the Old Testament. It's the one that sort of uh, is a shadow of. It's the one that's sort of a type of uh, John 6. It's the one that is given to us to prefigure John chapter 6. You see in uh, Exodus 16, and you know the context of Exodus, you know the children of Israel for 400 years were in bondage in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And God raises them up a deliverer. They raises up Moses to be the instrument, the one whom he would use to deliver the children of Israel from that bondage. And you recall that uh, Moses went to Pharaoh several times to get him to let my people go. And Pharaoh would not budge until ten plagues hit him. And then after those ten plagues, he relents and he says, the Jews can leave and they can go to their promised land. And so Moses leads them out, maybe a million or so Jews, leads them out of Egypt In the midst of that, Pharaoh changes his mind, and he says, I think I want him back. I made a mistake letting him go. He sends his army out there to get him, to bring him back. And you know how the story goes. The people are up against the Red Sea over here, and Pharaoh's army over here, they're caught in the middle. God does a miraculous event in separating the waters of the Red Sea, and they're able to go through. The children of Israel are able to go through the Red Sea on dry land. Pharaoh's army tries to chase them down. They get drowned So the children of Israel get into the wilderness. They get into the Sinai Desert. And they're to a very desolate place is is the Sinai. When they get out there, it's not long when they start complaining. They start complaining and say, well, you know, I think life was a little bit better back in Egypt because we had food back in Egypt. We don't have a whole lot of food out here in this desolate desert. And they start complaining and they start whining about it and they start really going after Moses and Aaron. You let us out here. And uh, we see in Exodus 16 that God does what God was already planning to do. He didn't do this because they complained. He was already planning to do this 
But in the midst of their complaining, he does what we see in verse 4 of Exodus 16. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Every day, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. Go down to verse 13. So it came about at at evening, he also provided some meat because he provided quails, we're told, as well. And they covered the camp, verse 13 says. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost of the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? What is this on the ground? For they did not know what it was, and Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Go down to verse 31. The house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. And they go down to verse 35. The sons of Israel ate the manna, notice, for 40 years. 40 years. In fact, you don't read about this stopping until you get to Joshua chapter 5, verse 12, when they get into the land of Canaan and they start eating some of the fruit of that land. The manna stops for 40 years. God provided the children of Israel with manna. But this is an event that's just anchored in the life and history and heritage of the Israelites, this event, God providing manna. Why did God do it? God did it to show them that salvation. God did it to show them that deliverance. God did it to show them that provision comes from him. Comes from him. And he provides it also, as we're going to see in our section today, he provides it as a greater illustration or a great way to illustrate the even greater bread, the even greater bread from heaven that would come. And that's our passage this morning in John chapter 6. And you remember last time, a a huge miracle is done by Jesus in John chapter 6 at the beginning. Probably his most well-known miracle and the miracle that involved the most people because he did a lot of miracles, but they were sometimes were very private or they were miracles that not a lot of people would see at one time. This involved 20,000 people where he fed them in a desolate place on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. There were no grocery stores, there were no provisions, there were no resources, and he created food and fed 20,000 people in that particular miracle. The people are going crazy. They see this miracle and they immediately start thinking of this is the prophet that Moses talked about. This is the prophet, the one who would come like Moses. This is the one who would come and be our deliverer. This is the one who would come and be our savior. This is the one who would come and carry on another Moses-like ministry. That's what's in their minds. When Jesus does this incredible miracle, and that miracle sets up the context of what Jesus is going to say in this sermon that he's about to give in the rest of chapter 6 of John. It's going to begin about verse 32 or so. But they're thinking, wow, food every day. Military Messiah here. Let's make him a king. And he starts seeing that, and Jesus, we're told, sends the people away. He himself leaves, and he goes away. And then, as we saw, they can't figure out the next day. They go looking for Jesus. Where'd he go? The boat's boat's still here, and we know the other guys left, and where did Jesus go? They don't get to see the walking on the water miracle but they go to Capernaum, 29 miles away, to the northwestern shore, and they go to Capernaum, and there in a synagogue is Jesus preaching. So it kind of gives you a little context here. But that miracle sets the scene for this sermon that Jesus gives about being the bread of life, the bread that came down from heaven. They find him 
And they're really a, a fickle crowd. I told you that last time. They're superficial. They want temporal needs met. They find him. They want possibly another meal. I mean, it's breakfast time, possibly another meal. But they're really into the works of Jesus. They're not into the person of Jesus. They're into the works of Jesus, but they're not into, as we're going to find out as we go through this chapter, they're not into the words of Jesus. You see, there's a big difference, folks. A lot of people like what God can do for them, but a lot of people want to leave God out of it. Just give me what he can do for me, but leave him out of the picture. You follow me? Same with Jesus. We like your miracles. We're not crazy about your words. Look down in John 6, verse 60. After he's through talking in this sermon, many of these disciples, and I'm not talking about the 12 when I say these disciples, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard these things he says in this very difficult sermon, they say, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Go down to verse 66. Many withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. People like the works of Jesus People don't like the words of Jesus. It's his words that will condemn you. It's not his works. Not a lot of debate about his works, but a lot of debate about what he says. And many people don't like what he says. Many people admire him and get excited about him and think great thoughts about him until he talks until they read what he says and they don't like him anymore. That is, that is an issue. People like Jesus to be the Jesus that they want. In fact, they're going to say at the end, we don't want this man to reign over us. They just got through hailing him king as he came through the city. But they really don't want him to reign over them. Do you want him to reign over you? Or you, just, or you just go to church because you want to pay accolades to him and to God, and, or do you really want him to reign over you? Do you like his words, or do you hate his words? Look at verse 30. That's where we're going to start this morning and see how far we get. Verse 30. We're in the synagogue, verse 59. Notice that, verse 59. He said these things in a synagogue in Capernaum. Capernaum in Galilee, northwestern shore of Galilee. Verse 30, so they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? See, Jesus had told them that if you want eternal life, back in 27, verse 27, if you want If you want eternal life, you must believe in him. This is a Jewish audience. They understand eternal life. And Jesus has told them, if you want it, I'm the means to you getting it. But they say we want further confirmation. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? They want further confirmation. They want Jesus to prove himself to them again. Do something else spectacular do something that would never cause anybody to question who you are something real really really big do another miracle do something that's undeniable because here's the thinking seeing is believing seeing is believing that's their thinking And you've heard people talk like that. If God is real, then why does he appear to me and prove it? Why does he just come down and tell us? And you see, that is exactly what he did 2,000 years ago. God became a man, wrapped himself in humanity, in human flesh. He lived among us for 30 years. He made claims to his deity. He gave evidence to his claims by the works that he performed. And he preached the truth. And the majority did not receive him, did not believe in him. In fact, as I said earlier, we don't want this guy to be our king or our Messiah. 
He said, I and the Father are one. Seeing is believing, really? They saw a lot, and they did not believe. Matthew 12, 39 says this, He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, which is a picture of the resurrection Jesus is going to tell us later, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Paul says Christ was a stumbling block to the Jews, not the kind of Messiah they wanted. The reason you are seeking a sign, he would tell them, you're evil and adulterous. Your heart, you have a heart problem. You're deceived by sin. You have all the evidence and you do not believe. Paul says we preach Christ and they do not get it. Their hearts are calloused. Their hearts are hardened. The natural man cannot understand the things of God. Folks, seeing is not believing. You know what it is? Believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. And you say, Rod, how can you say that? I say that because when you have the gift of faith given by the work of God, he opens your blind eyes. He takes down the the veil over your eyes and you see Christ for who he is. He does that work in the blind heart and blind mind. And this is going to develop as we go through this, so get ready. But that's their problem. It's not more evidence. It's not seeing so they can believe. It's believing so they can see. That's the issue. And it's funny that they're asking for this another sign because as one guy said, I heard say this, they're still burping up the miracle from last night. Isn't that enough what he just did? But they really have something specific in mind. And that brings us to verse 31. They say this. They go to the Bible. They quote a Bible verse from Psalm 78. Kind of a loose interpretation or translation of it. But it says this. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So why go to Moses and manna? Because back in verse 14, you recall the whole scene I told you about? They think he's that prophet from Deuteronomy 18.15 that Moses said would come. And they're right about that. But here we have another Moses on the scene. He is being evaluated against Moses. Outdo Moses. Do what Moses did. They make the bread connection, manna, and the Moses connection as well. You're the second Moses. Prove it to us. Show us. Thinking of manna, we're still thinking on that level. Understand, we're still thinking of providing food. We want you to do something similar to what Moses did. Rain down bread from heaven. And like I told you, for every day for 40 years. Can you top that one, Jesus? One time in, up the northwestern shore or the northeastern shore of Galilee, let's see you do this every day. Do what Moses did. Do for us what he did for us. We will give our allegiance to you if you will give us bread, free bread forever. Bread we don't have to work for. We don't have to submit to Romans anymore. We don't have to live these lives. We can be people who have bread every day. Jesus says to them, verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, It is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Truly, truly. When you say truly, truly, when you hear it said truly, truly, that's emphasis. Listen, this is important. He is about to make a correction for them. He's about to correct their thinking. 
It is not Moses who gave you the manna. He wants, you to under, he wants them to understand this. Oh, their scriptures say it was God, but they, as time had gone on, they had turned Moses into almost an idol. They had almost made Moses as the one who was the provider of the manna. He is the giver. He is not the giver, Jesus is saying. It is God who gave you that manna. Understand, that came from God. R.C. Sproul says the Old Testament is the biography of God. The book of Exodus is a biography about God, about God's power and God's greatness and God's wisdom. So when you're reading in the Old Testament, you're reading about God. Yes, he had many instruments that he used. Moses was one of those instruments that God used in a mighty way. But Moses is not the one that gave you the manna. Moses did not even touch the manna until he helped people gather it. Jesus, on the other hand, when the bread was put in his hand, he multiplied it miraculously. But Moses did not do that. He didn't give you this manna. This manna came from God. This manna that you received in the wilderness came from God who is in heaven. It came out of heaven. They, they had given God's glory to Moses was the problem. And uh, you think about other times. We see this people doing this with Mary today. Mary gets God's glory a lot of times. She, like she is the one who helps in salvation. Folks, Mary has nothing to do with your salvation. Many people want to make her co-redemptrix. She, they, they want to say she's a co-redeemer with Jesus. She's the queen of heaven. They give, they give divine attributes to Mary, stealing God's glory by giving it to Mary. No, she was an instrument in God's hands. Unique, yes. Mother of the Messiah, yes. But she even says in Luke chapter 1 that she needs a Savior. She needs a Savior. She needs God's mercy. Those are the things she praises Him for in Luke chapter 1. But she does not share His glory. Moses does not share God's glory. These are just instruments in God's hand. Notice also he says in that verse, you see it? My Father, see that? This is why they don't like Him in John 5, you might recall. Making, they persecuted Him because He was making God His Father, thus making Himself equal with God. You see that word there, my father? They don't talk like that. Jews don't talk like that. You're the same essence as God. Is that what you are telling us? That would startle them. And then the word gives. I just want to highlight that word in verse 32 as well. Gives is present tense. This bread is given, being given to you right now. He's saying to them, this bread from heaven, God gives Look in verse 33. He's going to give us more information about this bread in verse 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and notice, gives life to the world. He uses the which, the word which, like a pronoun now. He, he's narrowing it down. He's going to just make a declaration here in just a moment. But he says that which, uh, he says in, verse, in this verse, he says, which comes down out of heaven and gives life. It's a heavenly life-giving bread. You remember the woman at the well? They're drawing water from the well, and he says to the woman, I can give you water that will never make you thirst again. Remember that? That's what this sounds like, almost. I can give you bread that's life-giving bread. At the well, she was thinking literal water. We're drawing water. He's got a source of water that's apart from this well. Jesus is saying, have, he's talking about, I'm talking about a bread that will give life. 
Verse 34, they sound just like the woman at the well as well. They say, sir, always give us this bread. They too are thinking not of the bread Jesus is talking about. They're thinking of literal bread. They're thinking of the temporal bread. The bread their stomachs are hungry for. They said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Give us this bread that you call the true bread, verse 32. Give us this bread that you say comes down from heaven. Give us this bread. That's their thinking manna, right? Thinking manna comes down from heaven, comes from God. Feed us forever, no more hunger. They think this is great. They're still responding on a material level. And then Jesus throws out this declaration in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. What is the true bread? He says, he gives the identity of the true bread. I'm the true bread. I'm the true bread. You remember that John is a book with seven signs in it. uh, John, the Apostle John, in writing the book of John, he gives us seven signs, seven miracles that Christ performs, and he builds the whole book around those miracles to prove that Christ is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, and that by, by all these miracles you might believe in his name. That's his whole purpose, seven signs. He also gives seven I am's in the book of John, seven I am's. This is one of those, and the first of the I am's you'll see as we go through the, the book of John. I am the bread of life. It's an I am statement. It's uh, borrowed from uh, or comes from the book of Exodus when Moses asked God, who shall I say sent me? And you say, I am sent you. It's a name for God. So he, he uh, invokes that name by saying, I am. And then he adds the metaphors, and he's got seven metaphors that he's going to add throughout the book of John. The first one is here, I am. Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. Then he says in verse chapter 8, verse 12, he's going to say, I am the light of the world. I am the gate in 10.7. I am the good shepherd, 10.11. I am the resurrection and the life, 11.25. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6, I am the true vine, John 15, 1. This is the first of the seven I am's, you'll see. Takes the name of God and puts a metaphor on it that describes something about who he is. I am the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, all these things. They just give deeper meaning and understanding about who he is. And also I'll say this, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 8 says many of the things that were written in the Old Testament were copies and shadows of the things to come. And those are called types. Sometimes you'll run into that term, types, that God uses events and people and shadows from the Old Testament to point to Christ. The whole sacrificial system is a type, no doubt. You see the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We're told that in the New Testament, pointing to the Lamb's sacrifices of the Old Testament. Those were all shadows of the reality that we would have in Christ. And so you understand that. You understand some of the, the uh, uh, metaphors that are used about vine and uh, the door and the gate and all of those things were a picture of what Christ would be. And listen, you have to be careful with types, though, because sometimes everybody wants to make everything in the Old Testament a type of Christ. The safest way to avoid error in this subject, on this subject is to simply just go with those things that... Jesus says are types. For example, I would have never thought that Jonah in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights was a type of the resurrection of Christ. I would not know that myself just reading that event in the book of Jonah, but I'm told that by Jesus. You follow me? That's the safest way to know if the Old Testament event is truly a type of Christ. Just like the sacrificial system, it becomes evident that that's a type of Christ. 
So you just want to be careful with those things. And now we're told that the Exodus 16 event is a type of Christ. Bread. Bread, manna that came down from heaven. I know that now. I know that because the New Testament tells me that. Jesus tells me that in John chapter 6, it was all to be a type of foreshadowing Christ, the true bread. That's important to think about. Sometimes you read commentaries and they come up with all these ideas. You go, where did they get that from? How do they know that's Jesus in how do they know that vent back there is about Christ? So it's very important to always, always look for verification in the New Testament before you say that that is truly a type. And I'll also point out this. Seven times, this verse also says he came down from heaven. You see that seven times in this discourse he came down from heaven and that's why this is such a great Christmas passage because it says he came down from heaven he's the bread that came down from heaven look at verse 32 I already looked at this verse but you see it mentioned there the bread out of heaven and the true bread out of heaven you see verse 33 the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven verse 38 I have come down from heaven. Verse 41, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Verse 42, I have come down out of heaven at the end of the verse. Verse 46 doesn't use the exact language, but it says in verse 46, the one who is from God. Then you see verse 50, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven. This, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. This is incarnation, is it not? This is exactly what, exactly what happened when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This also tells you of the preexistence of Christ. He always existed. He was not born. Yes, his body was prepared for him, but he is the eternal, preexistent, always existing God. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word. To be there in the beginning means you were there before the beginning. He has always existed, self-existing. He was in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the bread that comes down from heaven. He did not ascend to heaven and then come back down. He was descended from heaven, John 3 says, because that's where he started. He came down out of heaven. That was his starting point, out of heaven. And there's something else I want you to see in this verse, verse 35. One other thing before I move past it, something that will help you interpret some verses later on in this sermon. Notice he says in verse 35, he says, in drinking my blood, (laughs) excuse me, Later, you're going to see verses like, eat my body and drink my blood. You're going to read those verses. And you're going to go, what is he teaching? Is he teaching cannibalism? Is that what he's teaching? You're going to see words like that. You're going to see figurative language like that. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. He's going to say that. Look at verse 50 and 51. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven. Notice in John 6, verse 50. So that one may eat of it and not die. Wow. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, there there it is again, he will live forever. Verse 55, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. To help you understand what he's talking about, verse 35 points to two words there. Excuse me, points to two words there. You will notice, he who comes to me and he who believes in me. In other words, eating my flesh and drinking my blood are two different ways, just a different way and a figurative way of saying the same thing verse 35 says, coming to him and believing in him. That's all we mean by that. 
Those two words, eating and drinking, as we will see later, speak to the internal nature of this. It's not an external worship of Christ. It's something that's done internally and happens internally. That's very important because we're not talking here. John 6 is not talking about communion. Get that out of your mind. It may picture it in some ways, but listen, communion has not even been instituted yet. This is not a communion passage. It may picture it in some ways, but this is not what this is about. This is not transubstantiation that the Roman Catholic Church preaches that you've got to turn the bread and the wine into the body of Christ before you partake it. That is not what's going on here at all. This is simply seeking to reach this audience with the need to embrace and behold the true bread from heaven. And you do that by believing by coming to him and believing in him. You, come to, you do that by taking in his body and his blood. Taking him all in. It's a true, true commitment. Those words just speak of that commitment to Christ. We'll talk about that more later. But I just pointed out here in verse 35 because it gives you some help in how to interpret those words later in the passage. They're just figurative language. They're not literal. His audience thinks they are. We'll talk about that next time. Some in his audience think it is, but that's not what he means. It's just figurative language. Because he never wants you to hunger again and thirst again. Those are internal cravings. Internal cravings that he says the true bread can take care of. Verse 36, back to John 6. Verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. It's all been clearly revealed to you. I have given the message to you. I have told you what God has told me to tell you, that I am the bread out of heaven. And he says, but you are not part of the ones who believe. Why do I say you are not part of the ones who believe? Because of verse 37. Notice, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. It's going to get tricky here now, so stay with me. You're not part. You are not part of the ones whom, verse 37, the Father has given who will come to me. Wow. Because the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. The one who the Father gives to me, I will never cast out. You're not part of, you're not part, you're not part of the ones who believe. You're not part of the ones that the Father has given to me. If you were, you would come to me. Interesting. Folks, this is just wonderful. There's a lot of things I'm going to say here. I don't know if I can say it all in 15 minutes, but here's what I'm going to say. This is wonderful assurance of the sovereignty of God in electing individuals to believe in Him. That's what this is. This is the wonderful assurance in God's sovereignty in electing individuals to believe in Him. Not everyone who hears is receptive. It's the ones whom the Father has given to the Son. They're the ones who are receptive. My sheep hear my voice. The ones whom the Father has given to me, they hear my voice. And they come. John 10 language. Get this. Man's blindness, man's callousness, is not, does not frustrate the saving work of God. Understand that. You look at our world, you look at the attitude toward God, toward Christianity, that does not frustrate God one bit. Does not frustrate the saving work of God. It does not, su- it does not frustrate those who will eat the bread. God knows who they are. They are the ones that the Father gives to the Son. I've told you this a few weeks ago. The Father loves the Son. And in that love relationship, God has given a called out humanity, a redeemed humanity, to sing praise and worship to the Son forever. You are not the main issue in your salvation. The love that God has for the Son is the main issue. 
The bread coming down from heaven was not the beginning of the plan. The bread coming down from heaven was the completing of the plan. Because way back in eternity past, God set his love on those whom he would give as a love gift to the Son. And if you're sitting here this morning, it's because you are part of that love gift to the Son. Sure, you benefit. You get eternal life. You benefit from that love relationship that the Father and the Son have. You get eternal life. You see, we're the church. We are the called out ones. That's what it means. We have been called out by God. We, have, we are the elect of God. That's, church, that's what church means. It's, it's not that he has decreed some for heaven and some for hell. He doesn't decree people to hell. All of humanity is our, our children of wrath. All of humanity are on the path to hell. He calls out, however, some who are on that path and gives them as a love gift to the Son, to be redeemed by the Son. This is the electing work of God. Look how he says all this. He, he, loves, he, he loves the Son before the foundation of the world. To show that He loves the Son, He chooses people from this world, gives them to the Son. Verse 38, um, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. I can't, he, Jesus is saying, I came from heaven not to do, uh, to be the bread of, he, has bread out of heaven, to be submissive to the Father's will. What is the will of Him who sent me? Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise them up on the last day. I came to do his will. Whoever he gives me, I will not lose them. You are saved because of the foundation because before the foundation of the world, he set his love on you, he chose you, and he put your name in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, the Scripture tells us. And that in living life, you one day come to faith in Christ. Listen, when somebody asks you, how did you become a Christian? You don't say, well, it started thousands, millions, infinite time ago. God just set his love on me before the foundation of the world and I put my, and, I, and that's why I'm sitting here as a Christian today. You don't talk like that. You say, hey, I went to that church, I listened to that preacher and he talked about these verses from the Bible and I, my eyes were open and I put my faith in Christ and that's how I became a believer. So we don't talk in this language, but we know once we are in the family of God, we know how we got here. And it wasn't anything that we did or made us better than anybody else. It's because in God's sovereign election, He chose us as a love gift to the Son and brought us to a point in our earthly existence where we put our faith in Christ and believe in Him. Jesus says, I came to do His will. His will is to, his will is to give me Give me sheep. Give me people from humanity that I am to hold on to and never cast out and raise them up, verse 39, on the last day. Turn to Romans 8 just for a moment. Let me just show you this. I realize some of you have seen all this before and heard me say this, but I want you to see. It's in John 6 too. It's everywhere. It's in John 6. It's in John 6, it's in Ephesians, it's in Romans. And I know it's a, a difficult subject to swallow if you've never heard it before, but understand it's what the Bible teaches. Our God is sovereign in salvation. Verse 29, for eight, Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. 
See, the predestined part, all that, that happened way back yonder. That happened way before time. That happened when your book name was put in the, written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then there came a point where He called you. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, future He will glorify one day. God will raise Him up on the last day. That is a chain link. That's the link of salvation. That's an unbreakable link. If you have been chosen before the foundation of the world, you will one day be glorified. You can't mess this up. That is your security. And my security is that the Father, the Father gives the gift gives you and I as a gift to the Son, and the Son holds on to us. That is incredible. Uh, I, I don't need to wonder if I'm a Christian and i am truly been saved, if I belong to Him, I don't need to wonder if I'm going to lose this. Listen, if I could lose it, I would lose it. I'm that bad of a person. We all would. But it's because He is the one that is sovereign over the salvation over our salvation. There is tension there. Even Paul had to deal with tension in Romans 9. If you're in Romans 8, just turn over to Romans 9. Verse 9, For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, Rebekah also. So he started talking about Jacob and Esau. He says, For though they were twins, were not yet born, and hadn't done anything good or bad. It had nothing to do with how good they were or how bad they were. God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And he said to her, The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Jacob I have chosen. I have chosen Jacob, not Esau. What shall we say then? Oh my, this is the tension. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? But God is not fair. God is not fair, we say. May it never be. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I like the way one guy said, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to go through a door, a door that says, whosoever will may come. Because that runs side by side, this doctrine, by the way. This is human responsibility. I haven't even got to that point yet. But this is human responsibility. Whosoever will may come. That's the sign on the door of heaven. That's the sign I walk under as I walk into heaven. When I get to the other side of the door, I notice that the sign says, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. They are both true. Both true. And I don't try to reconcile them because as Spurgeon says, you don't reconcile friends. They're friends. Human responsibility. You must believe. You must trust in Christ. You must, you must believe in the, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You must behold the Son. But you were chosen before the foundation of the world if you believe in him. Can I just show you one quick verse before we leave? We'll go down to verse 44. We're not going to cover this today, but this is coming up. This is coming up because it's going to get more like this in the weeks ahead. Verse 44, notice what he says. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see that? Verse 40, I'm talking about, I'm in John 6. I'm sorry, not John 9 or 8. I mean, not Romans 8 or 9. I'm in John 6. I apologize. John 6. You've got to see this before I close. John 6. You're going to see this verse again, by the way, later in the chapter, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father, the Father who gives the gift to the Son, that's what we're talking about here, unless the Father who sent me draws him. My job is to raise him up on the last day. But no one can come to me and be a gift to me from the Father unless the Father draws him. Folks, think about it this way. When you are hungry for literal bread, what makes you go and get it? It's the hunger pangs you feel in your stomach. It's because you want to satisfy a need that is inside of you, and therefore you go and get literal bread to somehow satisfy that need. 
And I would say the same is true on a spiritual sense. What is it that makes me want to eat the flesh of Christ and drink his blood? What is it that makes me want to believe in Christ and behold Christ? It's because I have a hunger. And it's not a man-made hunger. It's not something I put there. It's a hunger that God puts in me to make me want to satisfy it with Christ, the true bread. That's where he's going with this. The only way the bread, the only way the bread can satisfy, the true bread can satisfy if, is if I believe and behold and come to the Son. The only way that it can have any, meet my need, my deepest longings and my deepest needs, and we all have cravings for meaning and purpose The only thing I can give me a hunger for Christ is if God draws me somehow. We'll talk about what that means. But I think you get the point here. I preach the gospel to everybody because I don't know who God is drawing and who God is not. But I know He uses His gospel to draw people. He has told me the means by which He will accomplish His divine purposes is you and I preaching the gospel about Jesus. Don't let this doctrine be one that you say, well, it doesn't matter what I do. That is a wrong interpretation of this, God, of this doctrine. You and I have a great responsibility to preach the gospel because God uses His words to do His works in the heart of people. And that's why we preach it. That's why we keep preaching it. Verse 40, go back to John 6. Verse 40 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. You see that? Human responsibility running side by side with three verses about God's sovereignty. Two great truths of the Bible. I can't reconcile them in my limited mind. And you're just going to go into all kinds of heresy if you try to do it in your mind. Don't get philosophical about it. That just leads to heresy. Just thank God for it. He's the true bread. And we're going to see this verse next week, by the way. Let's, well, I'm, they were, here's their response. The Jews were grumbling. I bet they were. They're grumbling. Some of you are grumbling. I bet that's all I've said today. The Jews were grumbling about him. God, we, we like your miracles. We like what you do. We like your, we admire you. We like your compassion. We like all of those things. We just can't stand what you say. And yet it's what he says that will condemn them. God, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you, God, that we are a church that has an appetite for hard truths like John 6. Thank you, God, for these people who gather here today and listening to this wonderful music and by our wonderful choir and musicians. And I just praise you for all of them, God, as we have lifted up the name of Christ, the true bread from heaven, the true bread that gives life and satisfies all of our hungers. I thank you, God, that we can have hope and eternal security because you have, you have done a work in us that you started way back in eternity past. And you will complete in the, in the future when we'll be raised up. We thank you, Father, and praise you for your goodness today in Jesus' name. Amen.